Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to solve a question that a lot of people have had since November 8th, which is what does a Donald Trump presidency mean for U.S.-Russian relations? With us to extrapolate on that is Richard Richard Kahn, managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, which is a problem-solving and deal-making firm focused on Russia, advising Russian firms. And in his spare time, he also uh, is intricately involved in chess. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Lisa. Great to be here. So what are the implications for U.S.-Russian relations now that President-elect Trump is going to uh, assume the White House in January? Well, from the Russian perspective, we have a shuffling of the deck, uh, uh, an entirely new team, uh, obviously uh, the hopes that this relationship will improve dramatically. And, uh, and I think that this, <clears throat> even for those who may not be happy with the Trump presidency, this is certainly uh, one silver lining uh, he does seem to have a genuine interest in improving relations, looking for areas of common cooperation. And uh, so like I think what? there's a high likelihood. Some of those might be <clears throat> security, uh, that uh, obviously the uh, we have common interests in dealing with terrorism. Uh, but we could, over time, set standards for uh, technological security as well, although at the moment that's not something on the forefront since it's possible Russia is not actually you know, cooperating in that area at this stage. In addition, there's global warming. There are all, all types of issues that uh, uh, that are of concern to us and that we have difficulty handling without Russian cooperation and where we might draw lines and uh, say that we'll, we'll cooperate here even if we're not able to work together in other fields. Now, that would be the sort of the easy pickings. Uh, but there are other areas where, uh, more ambitiously, we might solve problems and get back on track, eliminating sanctions. And Trump is certainly going to be more amenable to that than I, I think the Clinton administration would have been. And Richard, how would you expect uh, this warmer relationship between the U.S. and Russia? Will it have an influence on Russia's relationship with, say, Europe, the European Union, and with some of the former Soviet states? How does how does it all play out? Is the U.S. influential enough um, to you know affect the, the prospects for sanctions from, from some of the other countries out there? Well, we, we certainly are. I mean, we, we've taken a leadership role in promoting sanctions as a response to the Russian act activity in Ukraine. Uh, but we don't want to jump ahead of ourselves. I mean, th having the aspirations, as I think the Trump team genuinely does, to improve relations doesn't mean that will happen instantly. There's certainly more to this than interpersonal relations, uh, but that's a starting point. And uh, whether he's able to uh, master the history of this relationship and think through the complexities will tell us whether uh, he's able to put together deals uh, that address the concerns you're now raising. For example, the interplay between uh, the handling of Ukraine and the uh, the Eurozone, uh, as well as the essentially the, the composition of Europe itself. Uh, there are many nations in Europe that are very concerned with Russia right now. And uh, so separating that out and just taking the perspective uh, that we can be friendly with Russia without any concern for how Russia is behaving outside of his borders, uh, you know, is a very complicated issue. And uh, so where you draw those lines, what types of areas you can cooperate in, and where you sort of uh, take the view that uh, Russian sovereignty 
uh, is, to, is to be respected and in other areas where we feel we have a legitimate reason for having some of our policies uh, affected by their behavior. Uh, you know, these are very complex issues for a new president uh, to try to uh, to master. Well, you know, last week, Thursday, President Barack Obama said, I've sought a constructive relationship with Russia, but what I have also been is realistic in recognizing there are some significant differences in how Russia views the world and how we view the world. Do you think that there is a risk that President-elect Trump will not treat some of the risks seriously enough? And what are the risks? Well, I, I do think it, it's a legitimate concern uh, in terms of how President Trump will look at the world. Um, the Russians have more of a, a sort of social Darwinistic approach, more of a rail politic approach. We in the West have historically been looking to establish international norms that we feel support rule of law and, and values that the West has traditionally uh, lived by. And whether uh, President Trump fully adopts those or seeks to modify those are certainly areas that uh, I'm sure many people are concerned about. Uh, from the Russian perspective, I, I think they're happy to see someone uh, coming into power who uh, I think instinctively shares some of their values, some of their more, more real politic values. Uh, uh, certainly like in my what? discussion, pardon me? Like what? Well, I, I can tell you that, you know, I had discussions just uh, recently with uh, with three people, with Peskov, uh, who was his uh, major advisor and spokesperson, Putin's, Putin's, Putin's right, advisor. as well as uh, uh, Filatov, uh, who's heading the Russian Chess Federation, is here for the big match, and uh, with a member of our team at Eurasia Advisors, who was instrumental in picking Putin uh, to come in after Yeltsin, uh, Gennady uh, Barbulas, who was chief of staff for Yeltsin. Um, I think all are very hopeful that the U.S. relations will strike a different chord now and more or less begin afresh in a genuine manner. Uh, but they are, I, I believe, uh, buoyed by the prospect that the president's instincts, that is President Trump's instincts, are uh, designed more to deal with problems on a case-by-case, -case, ad hoc basis that are uh, practical as opposed to uh, dominated by philosophy, by a doctrine. And uh, from the Russian perspective, that's good news because that is more or less how they come at it. Uh, they're very practical. We no longer have a division, if you will, in the world where Russia is promoting socialism or communism. Those days are long, long gone. Uh, they, they are focused on making money, on uh, promoting their own interests, and so in, in that respect, they, they want to do deals, and they're interested in achieving their goals and would very much like to see an administration that uh, is operating on a similar basis as opposed to promoting uh, philosophy. Richard, let's bring it back to where the real geopolitical drama is these days, and that's obviously the World Chess Championship. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Vladimir Putin has uh, vested interest in this. Could you, could you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, and this is something our, our, our new team would well understand. We, we, we have a president in the U.S. who is an expert at branding, right? I mean, that's been his business, and he's, he's spectacular at that. Hopefully now he'll use that to brand the U.S. very well and, and help us there. The Russians have not been... Uh, in fact, they, they diametrically oppose that. They've been the worst, arguably, in the world at branding, but they use chess as a major part of their brand. They want to win this championship in New York this week, and uh, they've sent over the top people uh, in their chess world and in their political world to support it. 
We Very could exciting. go on and on. Richard Kahn, <laughs> this has been fascinating. Richard Kahn, managing partner at Eurasia Advisors, on what President-elect Trump's regime will mean for U.S.-Russia relations. This is Bloomberg. more, Mike Regan, about emerging markets and kind of what the opportunities there are, uh, which with Richard Thies, he's a portfolio manager for Dry House Capital Management who focuses on frontier markets. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So go. I want to pose the question to you that a lot of us have been wondering, which is you see that dollar-denominated emerging markets debt is down more than 3% so far this month. Is this a buying opportunity? Um, I think it kind of depends on uh, on where you're where you're looking. Obviously, I think uh, I was listening in on you a little bit earlier um, and heard the discussion um, regarding just how much dollar-denominated debt is out there and how much has been raised. I think the good news um, for emerging markets is that most of that debt is actually in places like the Chinese financial system, which. Uh, has sort of shorter tenor, um, which is a little bit less risky, and I think. Actually, one thing that's getting lost in sort of the negativity towards the EM the last couple of weeks is the fact that commodity prices really are increasing a lot. Um, and a lot of places like Brazil, for example, um, has a lot of sensitivity to that and on the corollary doesn't have a lot of downside um, from U.S. trade like a lot of emerging markets do. Richard, I was reading one of the notes from your firm uh, called Making Money Mobile, really fascinating report about how in frontier markets – you know, not a lot of people have bank accounts, but more and more people are getting mobile phones. And this idea that sort of the fintech revolution will allow them to start doing more banking and banking-like services on, on their phones. Is that like one of the hottest opportunities in frontier markets? And will, do, do you expect them to basically just bypass the, the whole banking system and, and come at, at it more from a fintech mobile phone uh, uh, vantage point? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that that is how we're seeing it, and that is one of the key um, areas of focus for our fund. Um, and it's something, an opportunity that you see in a number of different countries. Um, for us, we're most um, interested in in the opportunity provided by mobile money in Bangladesh, um, but also it's it's happening in Kenya and and pretty much everywhere. Um, it's allowing countries to leapfrog um, the modern banking system and not have the need for um, physical infrastructure and branches. Usually what they do is use an agency model, um, and it allows uh, users to be able to do basically anything um, on their phones from deposit, sending money, um, and even in some countries doing some short-term borrowing. What's the difference between frontier and emerging markets? Um, well, there's a classification uh, that's you know done by the by the index makers, the gods there. Um, but then, I think I hear overall, they're very powerful. <laughs> they are. Um, but m- I mean, more broadly, I think it's it's just a distinction that's based on overall levels of both economic and capital market development, um, as well as the types of sort of disclosure and um, financial um, maybe integrity that you you see. So just since November eighth. Since Donald Trump was elected the next president of the United States, has anything about your investing theses changed? 
Um, I would say no, uh, honestly. I think there's sort of, we're struggling with sort of the same bigger picture issues that a lot of people are, you know, what Donald Trump means for international institutions like the IMF and Frontier obviously relies on that. Um, But I think, you know, the trade story and the protectionist from the U.S. is sort of a a red herring. I think the the export attractiveness for a lot of these markets like Vietnam, for example, goes a lot beyond um, trade deals and reliance on the U.S., for example. You know, a manufacturing worker in China and in other parts of Asia make now already make about $30 a day. In Vietnam, that's about $6. So, you know, companies like Samsung moving all of their production to Vietnam is, is not going to change because of the TPP or because Donald Trump doesn't like international trade. Uh, Richard, I'm curious, what, are there any specific frontier regions that uh, have caught your attention that have the best growth prospects? And I'm also curious, is there the potential for sort of non-correlated returns from uh, frontier markets? Or is it, you know, basically, are, are they relying on the same macro trends that developed markets are just maybe at even a higher beta? Sure. I'll take the second part of that first. I think that's sort of the the great thing about the asset class is that it is a little bit more, uh, or it's definitely more uncorrelated than an emerging markets. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, as you were discussing on emerging market debt side, the, the capital market integration between the developed world and frontier markets is a lot less. So, you know, since the election, um, for emerging market equities are down about 4%, um, and frontier markets aren't even down 1%. And the reason is that there's not that kind of hot capital um, tourist money inflow. Um, so that's that's a nice part of the, you know why it's a, a good portfolio diversifier. Um, to the first part of your question, on the regional side, we tend to focus more on the, the more attractive structural and demographic stories, and we find those to be most attractive in South Asia. So you'd see us having most of our exposure in countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Vietnam. Um, Richard, you know, I was looking at your your fund, Dry House Frontier Emerging Markets Fund. There's less than $100 million of assets in it. Do you think that there is a big advantage to being smaller? And at what point is a fund too big to really generate the the returns in emerging markets? Yeah, so I, I do think there is, particularly in Frontier, um, there is a, a huge benefit to having a smaller size. Um, and our fund is capacity-constrained for that reason. Um, I think once you start managing more than something like $700 million in, uh, in frontier equities, that, that becomes a lot more challenging. Um, and, you know, the median market cap in our fund is about $800 million. So um, it does allow us to find these like true growth, um, more idiosyncratic, um, really exciting stories. Uh, Richard, who are some of the investors that uh, you target when you talk about uh, frontier funds? I mean, is it sort of a, a small diver- diversification from pension funds and big institutional investors, or do you actually go after retail money too? Yeah, no, we don't focus on retail investors. Um, I think the so far there was a little bit of a retail excitement a couple of years ago when Frontier was hot and oil prices were really high. Um, but since then, most of the, the inquiries we get are from pension funds who are looking for um, a diversifier and specifically um, using it as sort of a better emerging markets exposure. It is amazing. 8.6% is the total return on emerging markets debt uh, so far this year. So certainly the declines that we've seen recently are really uh, a divergence from that and really don't even uh, cut into the bulk of the returns. Richard Thies, thank you so much for being with us. Richard Thies, Portfolio Manager at Dry House Capital Management.
book with a very scary title, <laughs> The Road to Ruin, The Global Elite's Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis. Um, perhaps it would be easy to dismiss if it wasn't written by Jim Rickards, who is an advisor to the Defense Department, among many other areas, and is uh, the best-selling author of The Currency Wars, The Death of Money, and The New Case for Gold. Jim, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be with you. So um, why don't we start with the line in the title of this book, what is the secret plan for the next financial crisis by the global elites? Well, it's been in preparation for a long time. And Lisa, I make the point in the book, uh, there are a lot of, there are 151 endnotes. Uh, readers don't have to read them, but they're there. But every claim, everything I say in the book is very well documented. For example, um, Brisbane, Australia, November 2014, the G20 meetings of the leaders of the Hoover 20 nations uh, agreed on a final communique, and in that was a plan. You have to go to the working papers, I mean, this is a little bit geeky, but in there is the, the global bail-in plan to freeze the financial system. So they're not going to do bailouts anymore. They're going to do bail-ins. The SEC recently changed money market regulations. So for the first time, money market funds can suspend redemptions in a crisis. They can act exactly like hedge funds. That was not true in 2008. When everybody wanted their money back, those money market funds had to give it to them. That meant they couldn't roll over dollar liabilities to European banks. The European banks couldn't get dollars. They went to the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank had to do $10 trillion swap, print up euros, give them to the Fed. The Fed got the euros. My point is all these machinations were going on behind the scenes. They fixed it by saying, no, the next time the money market funds can suspend redemption. So Americans think they can call the money market funds, sell the units, the money's in the bank the next day. They're going to find out the hardware in the next crisis. That's not true. I guess, Jim, the question is, uh, when is the next crisis? What would cause the next financial crisis that would uh, trigger these steps? Well, it's a long list, Mike, and, uh, but the way to understand it, I use uh, dynamic systems analysis and complexity theory. So imagine snowing. You've got a big pile of snow on the side of a mountain. Now, one snowflake comes along, disturbs a few more snowflakes. It creates momentum, and the whole thing pulls loose, and you have an avalanche. Who do you blame in that situation? What do you study? Do you blame the snowflake or do you look at the instability of the system? I look at the instability of the system. But in terms of snowflakes, there could be a lot of things. I mean, it could be uh, Deutsche Bank. It could be the Italian referendum, Chinese credit crisis. The biggest thing right now, there's a global dollar shortage. And that sounds strange because you say, hey, didn't the Fed print you know, $4 trillion after the last crisis? How could there be a dollar shortage? Well, the answer is that, yes, the Fed printed $4 trillion, but the world created $70 trillion of dollar-denominated debt. You have $9 trillion of dollar-denominated corporate debt from emerging markets. This is places like Turkey, Indonesia, Brazil, Malaysia, etc. That's not sovereign debt, which the IMF can bail out if they want to. That's corporate debt. Now, look at you've been reporting uh, since the election on a strong dollar, and that's right, the dollar is going to the moon. But that makes that dollar debt harder to repay, and we're going to have an emerging markets dollar uh, uh, default crisis worse than what happened in, uh, in 1980 and in the 80s with the Latin America. So there are a lot of things out there. But my view is it doesn't really matter it could, it, because if it's not one thing, it'll be another, and it could happen tomorrow. So, uh, you know, about the dollar shortage, people have been talking about the dollar shortage. Is that just another way of saying that the dollar could appreciate very suddenly and rapidly? No, well, uh, yes, because there's, there's a mad scramble for dollars. The, the point is, Yes, there are more dollars around, but there's a lot more dollar debt. And, and these emerging markets, again, I'll use, use Turkey, Brazil, pick anyone you like. Nigeria is a good example, South Africa. 
these countries borrowed dollars during the seven years of zero interest rates. Why wouldn't you? You get you know, a little spreads for credit, but why wouldn't you borrow at the lowest possible rate? The local currencies were more were were more expensive, et cetera. But it was sort of on the assumption that the rates would stay low and the dollar would stay weak. That's not playing out. The rates are going up. That's clear. The dollar's getting a lot stronger. World trade is actually declining. That's one of the scariest things you can think of. I mean, it's not like, we're not talking about trade deficits and surpluses. Those things bounce around. But the absolute level of global imports and exports is declining, very similar to what happened in 2008 and the Great Depression was the time before that. So these are these are dangerous warning signs. The, the other point I make, Lisa, is that, um, you know, everyone's kind of excited about President Trump and his economic policies and trying to figure them out. The stock market's going up because, you know, he's going to cut regulation, lower taxes, more infrastructure spending. So Caterpillar and John Deere go up and transportation. I understand all that. But these dynamic, uh, this dynamic systems analysis, this instability doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. These are the kinds of things that can play out regardless of who's, who's in power. These forces are bigger than domestic economic policy, as George Bush found out in 2008, except the next crisis will be bigger. Jim Rickards with a frightening uh, but fascinating look uh, at what to expect in the days and weeks and years ahead in the financial system. Thank you so much, Jim Rickards. In the grocery stores in England, a battle is raging. Andrea Felsted of Bloomberg Gadfly in London. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Hi. Um, you know, I, I loved your story today. It was talking about how supermarkets in London are bracing for uh, food price hikes as a result of the depreciating pound. And can we talk a little bit about which supermarkets will get hurt the most by this? Well, all of the British supermarkets will be affected. Um, I think the one that will probably do best is Tesco, because Tesco's had a terrible time over the last few years. But it is actually growing sales for the first time in three years. It's also the biggest, so it's growing from a bigger base. So if you're a supplier, you want more volume, and Tesco gives you the the most volume, so you're likely to give it your best deals. The others um, are not so good. Morrison's, uh, William Morrison, they they make about a quarter of all the food they sell. So they've got their own factories and their chief executive has been doing some deals with Amazon to supply them. So he's putting more volume through those factories. But Sainsbury's and Asda, they 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 are their sales are falling and so they're not going to get as good deals from suppliers. Uh, Andrea, I'm I'm uh, amazed at your lead on this column today. Marmageddon, Toblerone <laughs> Gate, yeah. shrinking fish fingers. Uh, fish fingers are shrinking. I mean, uh, well, I'm surprised there's been... not riots in the streets. <laughs> this is a uh, a big uh, a big thing that's been happening. It's called sort of shrinkflation um, <laughs> or defilling, and basically, so that retailers don't have to put the price up. They, shrink, they can keep the, the, the price the same, but they make the product smaller. So a classic one's been chocolate bars. The chocolate bars have been getting smaller. Or um, a, a boxes That's of cornflakes. So a box of cornflakes, it's the same size box, but it used to be full of cornflakes, and now it's only half full. So expect much more of this um, as retailers deal with this inflation. So everybody's losing weight, right? You walk around the streets and everybody looks <laughs> No, not, not yet, no. <laughs> well, how much money is on the line here? I mean, how much are these price increases potentially eating into grocery stores' bottom lines? 
Well, um, retailers um, that I've talked to think that this time next year, food prices could be up by um, about 5%. And if you think over the last two years, they've been falling steadily, um, then that's a big impact. But th- the funny thing about this story is there's kind of lots of moving parts because the the, the, the supermarkets have actually been moaning for the past two years about falling prices because it means they have to sell more products to get the same value of sales. I mean, it's great for the consumer with prices coming down, um, you know, notwithstanding, you know, shrinking sizes. So if there is a bit of inflation, they actually don't have to sell so much to get the same amount of sales. So while they are sort of saying we're trying to keep the prices down for consumers... Really, they'd love a bit of inflation just to get that top line going a bit. And I'm curious how the dynamics between grocery stores and restaurants are working. Uh, You know, I would think, is the same phenomenon happening at restaurants, higher prices and smaller portions? And and is that actually buffering the the supermarkets a little bit? People not eating out as much and, you know, cooking at home a little bit more? It could do. I mean, the the restaurants aren't going to be immune for this. They're going to either have to put prices up or shrink portions if, you know, this trend continues. And... It's funny because the restaurants have actually been a big competitor to the grocers. As as we've come out of recession, we've been eating out more rather than you know, putting more food in our supermarkets. Another thing that the retailers have been complaining about. So actually, if incomes do become squeezed a bit next year, as, as is likely to happen, that could in the short term be a bit of boost to grocers as they're eating out, as people are eating out less and maybe buying more in the supermarket. It was a phenomenon in the last downturn. There was a big thing, you know, people would eat at home or cook at home rather than go out and more upmarket supermarkets such as Waitrose and Marks and Spencers actually made a virtue of this and they did these dine-in deals and things like that but that's kind of taken a bit of a hit with the um, as people have more money and they go out again. This is all making me hungry. (laughs) Andrea (laughs) said of Bloomberg Gadfly speaking to us from London. Thank you so much. Uh, Mike, you're going to go get some uh, Toblerone? Yeah, we should have saved that one for after lunch. (laughs) I'm Lisa Bromwitz here with Mike Regan. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.